evening, I'd like just to, we're going to be looking at a couple passages of scriptures tonight before we open the Bible. Just kind of want to talk about a little bit of setting up what we're doing first. So tonight's, the title of tonight's message is the Torah's Messianic Message. The Torah's Messianic Message. And again, just as a review, what is the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we are familiar with that. It's called the Torah. The Torah itself, that word means law. Uh, It also could really refer to, we think of like the do's and don'ts in the Bible, but it's really referring more specifically to God's instruction. Uh, That's probably maybe a better way to understand that. But the Torah is very important. The first five books of the Bible, and I say the foundation for, for our Bible and for our understanding of who God is and his workings in our lives and especially for his plan of salvation. So this is very, very important. Um, we have been discussing too on Sunday mornings uh, going through Isaiah 53. We do have one more message we'll do at the end of the month uh, after, the mission, or after the prophecy conference that will kind of summarize that message uh, there. But I pray that Isaiah 53 has been a good study for you as it has been for me as we've just been learning more and more about what exactly Jesus did for us. And it wasn't just a coincidence that Jesus, again, just happened to live on this earth and do what he did and dying on the cross for us. It was all part of God's plan. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. And so uh, praise God for, for his word and for his plan and for his son. But uh, one thing I touched on, uh, it's been a couple of weeks ago, and even briefly this morning, we talked about was the idea of, and actually let's turn there to kind of get start with, uh, because I think it's a good place to start, and then we'll kind of be looking at a few passages tonight uh, throughout the Bible. Let's go to Isaiah 53. You guys should know it by heart, you might even have it uh, earmarked or something like that. Uh, let's look a little bit here at, uh, at, at this, Isaiah 53. Okay, and uh, let's look in verse um, 3 and 4. Let's start there, Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. Again, the suffering servant. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And there was a comment that we had looked at there off and on, we, and tonight we're going to kind of dig a little deeper into this, and that's kind of what we're, why we're starting here tonight, is this, the fact that the, the suffering servants, and we're going to automatically imply this is Jesus as the Messiah here, but as we see this, we see that one of the, his descriptions uh, in his sufferings that he had was that he was acquainted with grief, okay? Uh, or our pains, or literally our sicknesses. The word grief there that you have there is the Hebrew word chole, which is, means sickness or sick. Um, the, a clinic in Israel is called kupat kulim, and kupat kulim means the place of sickness is the idea. We call it a clinic, okay? A health clinic, they call it a, basically a place of sickness. Makes sense, okay? Might as well get to the point, right? So this is what it's talking about here. And then later on in verse 4, he has borne our griefs or borne our sicknesses or diseases is the idea that we have there. And so the idea, and just kind of summing it up again, even though that Jesus himself, we have no record of him ever, say, catching a cold, having the flu, being himself physically sick, but yet we know that he identified uh, and even interacted with those who were diseased. 
And we talked about leprosy in that regard as kind of a severe way that he did that. We're going to kind of delve into that tonight about looking at a leper Messiah. Okay, so as we think about this passage here in Isaiah 53, these verses, uh, there was uh, the writings of the Talmud. The Talmud is rabbinic writing that was written about 200 years or so, two to 300 years after, after Christ, after the first century. And uh, this was um, basically rabbinic commentary. It's basically the oral law. Uh, this is kind of where, think of this, in the New Testament when you have the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and they had invented all these other extra rules uh, that you see that, let's say, where did they get that from, for example, okay? All these things, that was kind of basically what they called the oral law, but it was in the third century about that. That's when the Talmud was kind of compiled as kind of a collection of the oral law, okay? Within that, though, there's a lot of, by the way, if you ever read the Talmud, you'll find out that it's really very confusing. Uh, It's basically what one rabbi talks to another rabbi who talks to another rabbi about the Torah, about something in the Bible, so it's just rabbinic commentary. And there's a lot of argument back and forth. There's a saying that you have two Jews, but you have three opinions. Okay, it's it kind of like okay, who's right? How many ever seen Fiddler on the Roof before? Okay, if you haven't, this this will this will make perfect sense if you've seen it. There's a there's a saying when uh, they're kind of arguing about what's taking place with the new world coming in. Everything is changing, and they're trying to hold on to their traditions. And the the people in Anatevka are arguing amongst themselves, and uh, they argue one point, and someone counters with another argument uh, that the, we need to change with the world. No, we need to stay in our traditions. They're arguing back and forth. And Tevya, he he's trying to be the peacemaker. He says, "You know what? You're right." And the guy says, wait a minute, how can he be right? And then Tevye says, oh, and, and you are right. And everyone's right. In other words, everyone has a say in it, okay? So this is kind of what's going on with, with the Talmud, okay? They're just kind of like, you're right, you're right, whatever. Everyone's arguing about each other. For example, there's a, a place in the, this is a little off topic, but there's actually a, a tractate or a section about an egg. For example... Can you eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath day? Okay, and then for the next several pages, you got rabbis who are arguing about whether you should or shouldn't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. You know, for us, I don't care. Just have it scrambled, right? <laughs> or boiled, okay? But that's, that's kind of what's going on in this. But nonetheless, there's some interesting things that do pop up, and especially on their interpretations of the Messiah. Now, I believe this, that the this compilation was really more of a, a reaction to the new believers, the, uh, the new church, the early believers who were, were Jewish. Now, these people are believing in Jesus. They're doing things that are contrary to the ways of Moses. That's, that's what they allege in our traditions. And so they're kind of counteracting that by writing the Talmud. Okay, So it's a reaction to the new believers. Anyways, interesting. So, But this is what they found. There was a story in the Talmud that describes a leper Messiah. It's a story about how the Messiah will be found caring for lepers. And this is what, I'm going to read the tractate uh, from Sanhedrin 98a and b. It says, describing the Messiah, His name is the leper scholar. As it is written, Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. When will the Messiah come? 
Go and ask him uh, himself, was his reply. Where is he sitting? At the entrance. And by what sign may I recognize him, the Messiah? He is sitting among the poor lepers. Okay? So that's uh, uh, what I just read to you is just a part of the Talmud on this leper Messiah. And you can very clearly hear what are they quoting to identify the Messiah? Isaiah 53. So they're associating him that the Messiah will be the one who is acquainted with grief. He has borne our sorrows or our griefs, okay? And so this is the one. He was esteemed a leper, stricken, smitten of God. And going back to Isaiah 53, verse 4, those words stricken and smitten and afflicted, those three words really have the idea of someone who has been struck with an incurable disease. That's the image that, that we see from this passage, okay? And so when you think of someone who is smitten with leprosy, go back again in the Torah when you have Miriam and Aaron who rebel against Moses. Uh, they didn't like his wife, for example, and they made a big fuss about it. And she was struck smitten with leprosy. That's the idea that you have here, okay? So this kind of sets the stage for what we're about to do. The passage there in the Talmud goes on to describe that the Messiah was carefully bandaging the wounds of the lepers instead of shunning them. So I think that's very fascinating, okay? So this is the Messiah would be one who identified with the lepers, with the, the outcast, if you will. I think that's amazing. Remember when Jesus came, what was he accused of? You're, you're dining with sinners. He was viewed as a friend of sinners. To the Pharisees and to their traditions, that was taboo. If you're a Messiah, you don't do that. The Messiah should be one king. They should be following you. You don't go the, the other way around. So Jesus was countercultural on that end. But I think we see here through Isaiah 53, and we can look at other passages as well in the Old Testament, that this Redeemer, this Messiah, is going to be one who identifies with the lowly with the outcast, okay? So with that in mind, I want us to talk a little bit about the story of the, of the Torah and what the, mess, the, the idea of the Messiah. So again, we're going to be kind of looking a little bit throughout uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, okay? So what we want to look at today is this, that uh, let's start with the book of Genesis, okay? Uh, we won't look at it, but let's look at a common themes. And we kind of did this a couple of weeks ago when we did the overall view of the, of the Old Testament, but some key, key aspects in Genesis, and I have it alliterated, okay? First of all, after creation, you have the fall, okay? A few chapters later, you have the flood, and then chapter 12, you have the family, family of Abraham, and then his descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel. So that all sets the stage, okay? So in other words, because of the fall, remember God creates a perfect world in Eden, and remember, because of Adam and Eve, and again, why in the world would they choose to disobey God and take of the forbidden fruit? We'll, we'll probably never know until we get to heaven, right? But nonetheless, because of that sin, that death passed upon all men, all men are sinners. But God, in his grace, sends a, uh, he's promised to send a redeemer. Again, the, the flood, and then through Noah and this family, and then later on, specifically Abraham and his family, was supposed to come, a redeemer. Remember Genesis 12, 3, I will bless thee that bless thee, curse thee that curse thee, but through you, Abraham, all families, all nations of the world will be blessed. And again, we've been blessed by two great things of eternal value, the word of God and the God, the word of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that now moves us into the second book of the Bible. And by the way, one thing I want to say is interesting. 
that when the book of Genesis itself, it starts with life, God giving life, breathing into, for example, man, the, the breath of life, man becomes a living soul. Okay, you have life, his creation. And what do you have at the very end of Genesis? What do you have at the very end of Genesis? What, what event happens? You have Joseph, but you have something going on. You have a funeral. You have the funeral of Jacob and then eventually Joseph. Joseph dies. Okay? So you start out with life at the beginning of Genesis, and at the end is a funeral, is death. And so who, where is this redemption going to come from? Is there going to be a deliverance? Well, we know now we go into the book of Exodus, okay? In the book of Exodus, we know there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and he puts the children of Israel to slavery. We talked about the Passover before. First uh, 14 or so chapters of uh, Exodus refer to that. There are, I would say, four important events that happen in the book of Exodus. First of all, you have the Exodus itself from Egypt. Think of the, the plagues, the Passover, the Exodus, the, the going through the Red Sea, um, through all that. And then the, the next event you have is the covenant at Mount Sinai. God establishes a covenant with his people. We think of the Ten Commandments, okay? Think of Charlton Heston, okay, uh, coming down. And you have the covenant at Mount Sinai. So you got the Exodus, and then you have the covenant at Mount Sinai. What's the next major event, would you say, in the book of Exodus? That covenant that God made is eventually what? Broken. The golden calf um, at the foot of Mount Sinai. You have the children of Israel worshiping a golden calf. In a sense, breaking that law. And Moses, interesting, what does he do? Comes off the mountain, and he what? He throws the, the Ten Commandments. They grind it up. They have to eat all, drink all that. It was just amazing. Uh, just a terrible situation that went on. And so this is what I want you to do now. That's, Gen that's Exodus chapter 32. When that, where that happens. Now, this is where I want you to look at something. Look with me in Exodus chapter 40. We're going to look at the very end of Exodus. And I want you to see something really interesting here. Exodus chapter 40. And what we have here, this is the setting up the tabernacle. So God, so think of this. The, God gives the covenant. The covenant's broken. And that implies a break of fellowship between Israel and and God, remember when we talked about this, it's been some time ago, that God wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests, okay? But they chose not to because of the rebellion. Also, they refused to do that. They wanted, in fact, Moses and Aaron and the others. So the Levites were, so they became, instead of a kingdom of priests, they became a kingdom with priests is what happens in Exodus. Now, the tabernacle is built, which sets up the stage for the, the people, the Jewish people, to have a relationship with Almighty God. Now we come to the very end of the Exodus chapter 40, and it says, verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay? And then look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud above thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is extremely important. Moses, who is writing this, I believe, but he, the, it's written in such a way it sets you up for something. In verse 35, it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation. Why? Because the glory of his Lord was there. Here's the point of this, that mankind in our current uh, failed condition that we have because of our sin, the effects of sin, that we cannot just enter as we will into the presence of the Lord in our current condition. 
That's the idea. Moses, even as humble and as a mighty man he was, he was not able to do that because of the glory of the Lord. In other words, what this is giving us a picture is this, that there's still a barrier to fellowship with God. How is that going to happen? So now we turn to the next, uh, next part. We have here, Moses was not allowed to enter into God's presence here. So now we go to the next book of the Torah, which is the book of Leviticus. Before we do this, I want to mention something that in the Hebrew Bible, uh, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In, in Hebrew, it's actually, it's, the books are called different, it's a different word, okay? So for example, Genesis is called Bereshit. Bereshit means literally in the beginning. The book of Exodus in Hebrew is called Shmot. Shmot means names. And how does the book of Exodus start? These are the names. So Genesis, Bereshit, in the beginning. Shmot, these are the names. And then in, in Leviticus is Veikra, Veikra, which means, and the Lord called. So what you're seeing here, and you're going to find it later on in Deuteronomy, I mean Numbers, which is called Midbar in Hebrew, which means in the desert or in the wilderness. And then you have Devarim for Deuteronomy, and that means these are the words. So this is what's going on. The names of the t- books of the, of the Torah in Hebrew are simply the first it's the first little phrase uh, in, that we find here. So that's what we have. So in Leviticus, it's veikra, which means, and the Lord called, which, look at Leviticus 1.1 with me. And the Lord called. Okay, that's the name of the book, okay? But we're used to Leviticus. So for us to keep on the same page, I'm just throwing something in. It's kind of interesting. But here's the point. The Lord called unto Moses, okay? And then watch what happens. Remember the end of Exodus, Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord. He, was, he, was, he couldn't get access. And watch what happens in Leviticus 1.1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and spake unto him, where? Out of the tabernacle of the congregation of Israel. So there's still a separation that's going on here. It's, very, it's intentional that's going on here. So the question is this, God speaks from without, outside of the tabernacle. That's the idea. And so, again, here's the big question of Leviticus. The big question of Leviticus is, how can God's people enter his presence? That's the big question of Leviticus. Okay, by the way, Leviticus is, I'll be honest with you, a lot of Christians are a little bit afraid of this book. Uh, It's just maybe a little, it's uncomfortable, the wording's different, it kind of is repetitive. Um, But I'll be honest with you, Leviticus is one of my favorite books personally. And you'll, get to, you'll kind of see that why I, I say that, at least for my, my aspect. But here's the thing. How does one get into the presence of God? If, like Moses, he could not enter into the tabernacle. How then can God is speaking from without the tabernacle? By the way, the tabernacle was a place of God's revelation. The way that he spoke with his people was through the tabernacle. Okay? So very important. Okay, so this kind of sets up. So Leviticus is structured a few ways. Number one, you have uh, in the book of Leviticus, you have rituals. A lot of these are ceremonial rituals, verse chapters one through seven. This includes things like sacrifices and offerings, for example. Um, We mentioned earlier the trespass or the guilt offering this morning. uh, And that's what I think Isaiah 53 is referring to. Also later on in chapter 23, you have God's festivals. God's festivals, the seven feasts of Israel, include, and also the Sabbath. And these were 
appointments that God had made with the children of Israel on a regular basis, a yearly basis that God expected his people, again, to have that fellowship. He was inviting them to have fellowship with them. Again, how can we have fellowship with, with God? That's the thing. Another thing you find out in the book of Leviticus is like chapters uh, 8 and 9, for example, you have the priests. So you have Leviticus talks about the rituals. And then number two, they talk, it talks about the priests, chapters 8 and 9. And this uh, was two things. Number one, the ordination of priests when they were appointed to be priests. And then also their qualifications. Not just anyone could be a priest, okay? For example, if someone was a handicapped or a dwarf or there was just other things that were going on, there were certain qualifications that not just anyone could be a priest, okay? There were certain qualifications that God had made for that. And then we also have uh, another very important thing, starting from chapter 11, 12 through chapter 15, uh, you have uh, basically rules about purity. These are both concerning purity. This is ritual purity and also moral purity as well. Talking about uh, there were certain things and activities that the Jewish people were supposed to abstain from. Purity also involved whether, you know, for example, touching a dead animal. What do you do with that? Um, uh, if you have some, some type of uh, uh, bodily issues going on. These are different things that you had to address, okay? So with that in mind, I want to mention this, that Leviticus tells us, speaking about purity, ritual and moral purity is this. Leviticus tells us that those who have contagious disease, like leprosy, for example, must be put outside of the camp, okay? That's ex- Leviticus chapters uh, 13 and 14, 15 in that area. And remember, those who were, had leprosy or had these diseases were considered unclean. Remember back in the New Testament, there was lepers or others that would go throughout the city. If someone got close to them, unclean, unclean. It's kind of like what we did with COVID, you know, unclean, don't get away around me. Remember all that? Okay. So here's the thing. It's interesting that this, in this time, and this is kind of where it gets a little bit, I'll, I'll make it PG-13, I'm not going to make it rated R or anything else, but this is what's written in the Bible, okay? You're kind of sharing that, all right? Because my kids are here and other kids, I'll make sure this is best as I can do it, okay? When you read through Leviticus, you're going to find out there's different purity issues going on, uh, ritual issues and moral issues as well. For example, we learned that women, uh, they aren't clean during their monthly cycle, Okay? Uh, and so there's a time where you have to wait out for about a week or two. Okay, it's very important. By the way, in Orthodox Jewish societies uh, today, uh, they abide by those rules still very stringently. I remember when we were in Ulpan in, in uh, Hebrew school, we had this one religious lady who was uh, from Denmark, immigrated to Israel. And she kept these rules very, very important. It was actually frustrating. Uh, she was kind of sharing that with my wife. Very interesting, though, on that. So, again, if someone has abnormal bleeding, for example, it also applied to other um, bodily fluids as well. Okay? So all these things that happen. So the idea of losing, whether it be blood or other bodily fluids, here's the idea. That made you unclean, impure. Okay? And what that implied is this. Sometimes we look at those verses like, what in the world are we talking about here? What this implies is this. The loss of these certain bodily fluids implies a loss of life. That's the picture here. It implies a loss of life, which means what's a loss of life? Eventually it leads to what? Death. Okay? And that is the antithesis 
of this. Because what happens later on in, in Leviticus chapter 17? The Bible says that the life of the body is where? In the blood. So if you lose blood, you're losing life. It's, it's a symbol of death. Okay, so you need something that will restore you. And that's why they stress so much on purity and cleansing and things like that. Very important. Later on, we also read that those with, with blindness, the lame, other defects were banned from certain areas of the temple. Like we said, not just anyone could be a priest, for example, or even enter into the tabernacle or the temple because they, had the, they were blind or lame and, or had other issues. And of course, the temple was a no-go area for if you were a Gentile, okay? So there, there's a lot of stipulations. And said, so, man, there's so many rules. How do we keep up with them? And why? I mean, man, and, and that's what a lot of people think. We, a lot of people think that God is just a, he's just a vindictive God who is waiting to strike lightning on you, right? To punish you for whatever reason. Now, I'll be honest with you, the pagan cultures that were around, the Canaanite gods, or I'll even throw in the Greek gods, for example, those gods were very fickle, according to their mythology. I mean, they would punish anyone just for the fun of it. Is our God like that? No, he's not. That makes our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, different from all other gods. Very important. So God has a reason why these rules are in place. There's a big picture. What is the big picture of the Torah and specifically of Leviticus? The key concept of God here in the Torah, or really the heart of the law, is his holiness. Our God is a holy God. And that's why we cannot have anything that is a symbol of death enter into his presence. Okay? So this is very, very important as we see this. Okay? And so where does this bring us to? In uh, Leviticus chapter 14, here's, the, here's kind of where we're getting to tonight. Leviticus chapter 14, it says here, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priests. Okay? So, and then there's a lengthy passage here. It talks about how the cleansing was supposed to happen. But here's where it happened. Verse 3, And the priest shall go forth where? Out of the camp. The priest shall look and behold, the plague of leprosy uh, be healed in the leper. So again, you did not, uh, the leper didn't go to the temple for the healing practice. That would, that would have defiled the priest as well as the, 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 the sanctuary. Okay? So here's the important thing. The priest goes out of the camp to bring, basically bring the leper back into the camp. Okay? That's his, his idea. Uh, but this sets us up for something very, very important. Okay? Very, very important. Then, how then does someone really get access to God? And we talked again to, earlier today about the, uh, the, um, the uh, trespass offering, the guilt offerings. And that was back in uh, chapters four and, or 5 and 6 of this passage. And then we come up to the, what I would say the focal point of the Torah. If you open your Bible to the middle of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, where is it going to land? Leviticus. Okay, it's the middle book. But where in the book of Leviticus is it going to land? Chapters 16 and 17. And what is that? The Day of Atonement. That's the point. That's, this is the beauty of it. In other words, the structure, the way that this is designed, it's a story. It's a beautiful story of God's redemption. How does someone come into the presence of the Lord in our, our current condition? We can't in them ourselves. We need to be atoned for. And that's where you're going to have the Day of Atonement once a year. 
that they would bring the, the goat and uh, they would sacrifice the goat as a, uh, as a, as a kippur, as a, as a covering uh, for them. So it, very important as we see this. Okay, and so in other words, the central theme is of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, chapter 16 and 17. And this is how God would bring people then into his presence. Very important. So here's the, what, this is the important thing. If you could say, well, how would you sum up the book of Leviticus? It would be this way. God graciously provides for his people how to live in his presence. God has made a way for us in our condition to enter into his presence. Again, you have a literary theme. Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle. He couldn't enter the presence of God. And even God is speaking outside the temple. Now as the story progresses, you go through all these rituals and all these rules and sacrifices and things like that. And now all of a sudden you come to the Day of Atonement and when your sins are covered, now you can enter into fellowship with God. And your sins are covered. Your sins are taken care of. Pretty amazing. That's the beauty of this passage here. So at the end of Leviticus, Moses challenges the people to be faithful to God. So with that in mind, a question here, and it's a little bit of a case study. So, for example, one of the rules that was done, in fact, back in uh, uh, earlier part of Leviticus, you had the laws of the Nazarites. Think of Samson, long hair, okay, all that. And so what is Samson, uh, what was something a Nazarite could not do? He could not touch what? A dead body, then he would be defiled. Then how does he take care of that? He takes care of that by offering a guilt or a trespass offering. That's what we talked about earlier today. Uh, also, when the priests were consecrated, when they were ordained, they were also supposed to take a trespass offering to, for to whatever sin would be taken care of for that. So here's the important thing. Here's the question we need to ask and when we think about Leviticus. Was it a, actually a sin to touch a dead body? No. It was not in itself a sin to touch a dead body. It was unavoidable in a lot of cases. That was just a part of, remember 40 years of the wilderness, remember that whole generation that said, we're not going to go to the promised land. God says, everyone 20 years of age and up, you're going to die in the wilderness. So guess what? For 40 years, they're having funerals. They're going to be touching dead bodies. And then we deal that even that today, okay? So was it a sin in and of itself to touch a bit dead body? No, it wasn't. I mean, what would happen? If you touched a dead body, what would happen? You go outside the camp, you cleanse, you make an offering, you do a ritual bath, you do a cleansing. And then guess what? After that, you can come back into the fellowship of the camp. It was just a little hiccup in your schedule. That's it. Okay? So with this in mind then, was it a sin to touch a dead body? No. But here is the point. Here's the kicker. However, it was a sin to touch it and then walk into God's presence without cleansing. That's the point of this. If you touch a dead body, let's say, and then all of a sudden you go into the temple or the tabernacle and do whatever thing for God without taking care of the cleansing, guess what? That was the sin. That was the sin. That's why God, again, what's the theme? It's God's holiness. You're touching something death, of death. God is a God of life. He's the God of living, not of the dead. And so this is why there was all these rules concerning that. Here's the case study. Remember, Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. This is in chapter 10 of Leviticus. What happens? They go nonchalantly into the tabernacle and offer a strange fire. By the way, this is interesting. Chapter 9 of Leviticus talks about their ordination set up as the priests. Chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu go into the tabernacle. They offer strange fire. What happens? They're zapped, okay? 
They're basically consumed in the fire there. Okay, so they, they, were, they came in without that. So that's kind of the case in point here. It's a case study of that. So in other words, God takes his holiness seriously. He is holy. That's who he is. And so that's why he says, again, actually several times in the scripture, be holy for I am holy. It's a call that's made. That's the message of Leviticus, okay? Now, is there good news for Israel? Yes. So again, going back, because of the fall, that's Genesis. And now the covenant is given to, to Israel. They break it. Moses can't go into the tabernacle because of the glory of God. He's not allowed in. Leviticus begins with God speaking outside of the tabernacle. And then you go through all these purity laws, the day of atonement. God is providing a way for people to have access to him. And now come with me to the book of Numbers chapter 1. The book of Numbers chapter 1. Okay. And let's look here in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month, second year. Okay. But here, look at that very carefully again. And the Lord spake unto Moses, where? In the wilderness, where? In the tabernacle. In Leviticus chapter 1, he's speaking from without the tabernacle. Now in Numbers, we have God speaking to Moses in the tabernacle. So this is very important as we see that. In other words, God speaks from within the tabernacle. In other words, God has granted access now for his servant to enter into his presence. In other words, Leviticus worked. <laughs> Leviticus worked. All those rituals and laws and all that, and leading to the day of atonement, which they had to apply by faith. They had to apply that by faith. Guess what? It worked. And now we see here in Numbers 1 that God is speaking in the tabernacle. So here's a very important thing as we see this. Deuteronomy now, there's a giving law, a second law. That's what Deuteronomy means, it's a second law. He's giving, Moses is giving uh, basically a, a summary of the law that was given earlier on in, in um, Exodus, for example. And then he's adding a few others to it. And then also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, let's go there really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This, is, this should be familiar to us. We went out on it not too long ago on a Wednesday night. It says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. Okay, and it kind of goes through the rest of what we call the Shema. In other words, this is a call to respond to what you have heard. Okay? Later on in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, and we talked about this this last Wednesday night, that there would become a prophet like unto Moses. And when that prophet speaks, you are supposed to do what? Hear him and do what he says. Okay? This is the idea. So there was a giving of the law, then a call to respond to what you have heard, and then there was a call to look for that prophet like unto Moses. And just to kind of sum up that we did a couple of weeks ago, go with me to the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. Deuteronomy 34. And it's looking in verse, uh, verse 9. Let's do that. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, and Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him. In other words, they listened to him, as did the Lord commanded Moses. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, who knew God face to face. So, again, and we talked about this before, that here we have Moses' successor, who's Joshua, who is a great man. 
uh, have a lot of respect for Joshua, I really do. But what happens is this, that it says there's a kind of another comment. Again, Moses has already died by this time, so someone else, another editor is writing this. And so, again, there arose a, uh, not a prophet since in Israel like another. So in other words, they're still looking for that prophet. It wasn't Joshua. There's still another prophet to come. And this is the messianic message of, of this. By the way, the, the idea of the Messiah is actually very hit and miss in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. Yes, there, there is prophetic passages that are there, but you don't really see the Messiah coming out as much. You could go to Genesis 3.15. Uh, you could go to... Um, Genesis 49, there's a few places you can definitely go. Deuteronomy 18 is another place. But here's the thing. This is kind of summed up with this, this story. So when we see the idea of the Messiah, we look at it in kind of like in big, bold terms. Here's the Messiah in every place. But in the, in the first five books of the Bible, you have to kind of look and search and see, compare Scripture with Scripture. And so some would argue that the Messiah really isn't there in the Torah. In fact, remember the, the Sadducees, they did not believe in a resurrection. Because why? They only held to the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. The Sadducees were the ones in Jesus' time over the temple. Okay? So they did that. So again, they would argue, well, there's not really a Messiah, not a, of a resurrection that's there. So here's the point. Just because the Messiah is not mentioned abundantly in this passage doesn't mean that there isn't a Messiah or that we can't know the Messiah. Here's the, the point. How many have ever read or you've seen the movies at least of uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? The Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, most of you have. So we have, if you look at that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for example, who is the main character? Aslan, the lion, hero, Okay. Beautiful story, by the way, that C.S. Lewis does. But the thing is this. How many times is Aslan actually mentioned in that book? Here and there. Actually, Mr. Beaver is actually mentioned a lot more times than Aslan's name is mentioned. Does that mean that Aslan doesn't have an important role then? Absolutely, he's the main character of that. And so just like that, just because we might not see the Messiah in every other verse doesn't mean he's not there or that we shouldn't be looking for him. And so this is the idea that we look here in these scriptures. You see here, when Jesus comes on the scene, this is where I want to kind of sum it up. I know we're just a minute over. Bear with me. What we see here in the miracle of the, the lepers being cleansed and Jesus, going back to Isaiah 53, of Jesus identifying, the Messiah identifying with the lepers, those that are diseased. When he comes, when Jesus came, he, gave, he had power to heal the leper. We've seen that in Matthew chapter 8. And then also when John the Baptist comes, are you, is it you who should come or do we look for another? And what does Jesus say? Go tell John that I am the one who heals the lame, gives sight to the blind, and cleanses the lepers. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 53 out of that. With Jesus, we see a reversal of laws of the clean and unclean. And instead of becoming unclean by the outcast, his mighty power over sin and death brought cleanness, life, and health to all he touched. The holiness of Jesus was so powerful and incorruptible that he could never be made unclean, and even death could not hold him in the grave. That's, that's powerful. Whenever, wherever he went, Jesus, he turned the tables on the exclusions of the Mosaic law. He brought healing, inclusion, and joy. Jesus was and is the promised one. When you look at Jesus' miracles, of all those people who could not come in the presence, those who had bleeding issues, those that were lame, that were blind, those that were lepers, aren't those the same people that Jesus healed? 
Absolutely. He touched them, and he remained pure. He remained holy in the midst of unholiness. And he brought people into the presence of God in relation with them. And that's why he died for us, folks. That's why he went to the cross and paid as a, he poured out his soul into death. And it was a trespass offering for us. Wow. That's the story, the messianic message of the Torah. So there's a lot more we could probably dig into it, but that's just kind of a very, kind of a big overview that we did tonight.